the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and at five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on your basic Thursday edition, great to have you on board for Lifeline. We are here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Hey, don't forget, coming up tonight at 6 o'clock, it's our next installment in our ongoing parenting series with Vern Tyler of the Hosanna Parenting Project. Are you familiar with the work that they've done? Um, Vern and his wife, my goodness, I think, I don't know if it's a record, but I, I, I think they have foster parented something like 800 children down through the years of their ministry. Not all at once, of course, but they've, they've <laughs> Jarrell was looking at me, Really? Um, About 800 kids, I think, down through the years of their ministry. And uh, Hosanna Homes had a huge impact as being one of the few um, places where parents could be trained on how to be effective Christian foster parents. And, of course, eventually the state came in and said, oh, placing hurting kids in Christian homes, well, we can't have that. They might force them to do things like go to church or read the Bible. Certainly couldn't have that now, could we? So they, they kind of did a shift in their focus and um, utilizing all of these years of experience in dealing with kids that, let's face it, are troubled and challenged in many ways. Uh, they have put together a multi-part series that they typically teach in churches over the course of a number of weeks on how to become a more effective parent. And whether you're new at parenting or perhaps dealing with a problem child, whatever the issue might be, or just want some insights on how to become a better parent, this is really a great series. So we asked Vern if he wouldn't be willing to come in once a week and to provide this teaching series. And so uh, we've got the next installment for you tonight at 6 o'clock with Vern Tyler in our ongoing series on parenting. So we invite you to tune in for that. If you've missed any of the previous installments, they can be heard on the Lifeline podcast. You can just go back and look for the 6 p.m. hour on each Thursday. We're now in week number three, Jerome? Week number three. So you can uh, catch up that way. All right, let's get down to cases here, shall we? Probably with mixed feelings, in many respects, happiness that Cecile Richards, the daughter of the former governor of Texas, is stepping down from head of Planned Parenthood. And there is now confirmation that this is going to be happening. And we have details from Tom Roberts' relationship. Sources tell BuzzFeed News that Richards, who has served as president of the Women's Health and Reproductive Rights Organization for more than a decade, has already alerted several board members of her plans. Many see Richards as the face of Planned Parenthood and his political arm, the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. As president, she expanded the organization's fundraising capacity with multiple celebrity campaigns. Tom Roberts, NBC News Radio. 
News, of course, of this resignation comes as the administration in Washington is fighting to cut state funding for Planned Parenthood, and rightfully so. The tenure of Cecile Richards as the president of Planned Parenthood has been a very sordid one, as we learn from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, Brian, in addition to things like the reduction of patient services outside of abortion services, of course, under the Cecile Richards administration, there has been one scandal after another, the scandal related to the campaign of misinformation that claimed Planned Parenthood provided mammogram services when it turned out it actually only refers to third parties who provide mammogram services. And then more recently, and perhaps more horrifyingly so, the revelation of Planned Parenthood illegally marketing harvested baby body parts. I suppose in the end, while she was successful at bringing an awful lot of fresh money into Planned Parenthood, much of her tenure is not a tenure that's to be celebrated, is it? No, thanks. It's been a very revelatory evening tenure. And we see it nearly every week. It's just that the media put the dots together. But literally, the most recent scandal in Hollywood, as you mentioned, she was a genius at using Hollywood, but people don't seem like that the number one perpetrator of sexual abuse and sexual impropriety in Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein, now even his liberal leftist friends are distancing themselves from him. He used women routinely. He was the number one donor to Planned Parenthood. This man, and it underscores recently what people don't seem to understand that, that abortion actually obviously ends a human life. But it hurts women. It helps men who want off the hook. And that's the real power of abortion. So the and, and, and it is very clear. I completely forgotten about her her mother, Ann Richards, governor of Texas. You see consistently, and I just want to say friends that are Democrats. I'm not picking on the Democrat Party per se, but this is the case, Democrat Party. This isn't this isn't uh, um, the, the Democrat Party maybe you were raised on. This is a dramatically rabid dedicated to unlimited abortion for any reason or, or no reason in particular. That's what choice means, that you just want to choose it. You don't need the hard cases. You don't need the reason that there's a fetal deformity or mother's life or health surrender. No, choice means I just want to kill this kid. Shut up. And I want the government to pay for it. So that relationship between that party machinery that exists and the abortion industry, it really is inescapable. And the people that benefit are the people who are, in one sense, beginning away with some heinous things. And I, that's a Sarvey Weinstein. Not the other sort you know. I don't want to keep bringing him up, but obviously the Clintons, Mr. Clinton, the big supporter of Planned Parenthood, we know, are known for. But the reality is that abortion is really a very, very tawdry thing to really get. But it supports really creepy things. And we know, as you pointed out, Greg, that it covers sex abuse. It really covers up child abuse. Abortions done on minors in California, done on minors without handling. You know, if there is rape or incest, 
Well, I was being used to cover that head up. If Uncle Charlie is the fast guy, we need the authority stepping in. That's the range to have that niece fresh. Never get an abortion so that he can keep up what is truly his people get. We're just seeing the surface of this. We're seeing the media waking up and they're being put the dots together, but they're there for anyone to see. So, Cecilia, we're stepping down. There's so many what you're doing now, right now, Chris. You know, what, what's interesting about her tenure as the president of Planned Parenthood, she came to the organization not with someone that has a background in medical care or women's services or women's health care, nothing of this sort whatsoever. In fact, her background was purely political, and it seems as if her number one job, which at the end of the day she was quite successful at, was bringing more money into the organization. I mean, for, for, for an organization that, that claims to provide services we find over her tenure it providing fewer and fewer services. We find it crossing swords with the government in terms of illegal activities, ever increasingly bids for more money to come in from outside donors, both private sources as well as, unfortunately, the U.S. taxpayer. So it seems as if the biggest mark that she's left on the organization has been a financial one. Would you suspect given the history of this organization, that whomever they seek to replace here will probably equally be somebody whose number one skill is in the arena of money-making? I think it has to be, for their sake. And in media, presentation. It's really been the media that's been, in a sense, protecting the industry by the way it's framed, by the kind of reportage one sees. You and I know it's great. We're seeing it's all this. This week, still, the interval blow is hugely significant. And since the road decision, every year since, hundreds of thousands, if not millions now throughout the different states gather, well, notables in Washington, D.C. I was back there this last weekend. But that gets very little coverage. Well, let's talk about that, because not only is it a necessity for Planned Parenthood to have somebody that has a deft touch when it comes to manipulating the media, but the issue of media manipulation of this topic is one that goes way back to 1973. In fact, yesterday on the program, we were talking about the the history of former abortion provider and champion Dr. Bernard Nathanson, whom, as you know, uh, changed sides eventually when the full awareness of what he was involved with really... Uh, awoken his conscious and the issue of media manipulation is something that was part and parcel to the abortion agenda from the very get-go from the 1960s and sadly there's been a lot of collusion as we'll find out when we come back in our conversation with brian johnston brian has just gotten back from washington dc where from mainstream media you would hardly know that there was a pro-life march in washington this past weekend though there was to mark the anniversary of roe versus Wade, although, quite frankly, based on the mainstream media coverage across the banner of both uh, cable as well as um, over-the-air broadcast media, seemed to be nothing more than women protesting pro-lifers and little to talk about the topic of 
the pro-life rally that took place there. We'll get to some insights on that part of the conversation as our visit with Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee continues right after this. By the way, don't forget the big Walk for Life West Coast this weekend in San Francisco. It's Saturday. Details on the web at walkforlifewc.com. Let's check in with Michael Bennett. He's got the latest on your Thursday ride home from the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been talking about the coverage of last week's pro-life march in Washington, D.C., or maybe more accurately put, lack thereof. It was interesting to note that our friends over at the Media Research Center reported, and they, they take out the stopwatch, and they record coverage of all the major news networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and then they take out the stopwatch and say, okay, how much time was devoted on each of the respective networks to reporting? And probably no big surprise, a combined, (laughs) ready, sitting down, combined two minutes and six seconds between the three major networks. That's not two minutes and six seconds each night of each of them. It's two minutes and six seconds between all three, all total, leading many to believe that there couldn't have possibly been a pro-life meeting or rally in Washington, D.C., because by the way mainstream media tells it, it simply didn't exist. Is that part of an intentional agenda, in your opinion, Brian Johnston? Well, it's pretty inescapable, and I think we're seeing it obviously on a number of issues that that those who are are controlling the media, by and large, have the same belief as many in the Democrat Party. And that belief, it's actually a belief. That's in Hegelian progressivism. Progressivism is a belief system that believes progress has to do with the future and that the, the government can fix the future now. There's problems coming in the future, and we need to prepare for that. So progressives are busy doing that, and they're passionate in their faith. I met progressives that are more passionate about their faith than many Christians I've met about theirs. So this is a belief system. I'm not. It's not a conspiracy. See, a lot of people say, "Oh, there's a conspiracy." No, it's not a conspiracy. They have the same belief system, and so they really don't want to think about your values because you're old-fashioned. You're not progressing. They want to think along with those folks that are seeing the future and preparing for it. And so this is pretty widespread in our culture. And if you haven't recognized it, then it's time to do. It is a belief system. And that's what we're up against. And it's slowly being challenged. I must thank, really, the President of the United States, who has he's got a hive as thick as an elephant's. And that's wonderful because, as you know, he's taken a lot of abuse, and he's he's willing to, when he's mocked, he's willing to mock him back. And he's willing to stand, and that, I think, is why we're seeing these challenges to that belief system. And it's why Planned Parenthood and so many on that side of that fence are, are nervous. Because, uh, you know, let's don't make the mistake, by the way, that progressives make. Progressives see the government as a messiah and the Supreme Court as the principal agent of that messianic government that's going to fix the future. And that's why they like the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade. Let me prepare you. Do not make the mistake they make. When Roe is overturned, 
that's not going to end abortion. It's going to let you do the work you should have been doing all along. That is to say, Roe versus Wade overturned the laws of all 50 states, and even in California, we had laws protecting those babies. They weren't as good as some of the other states' laws, but even in California, the lawmakers, influenced by the citizens of California, had passed the laws that said you can't kill a kid except before 20 weeks, after 20 weeks, you've got to let that kid live. Before 20 weeks, you have to have some really good reasons, and you've heard the litany, rape, incest, life of the mother, severe fetal deformity. But you better give one of those reasons, because that's a, that's a human baby. California had those kind of laws. Most other states were very much more protective. Roe, fulfilling progressive ideology, said, no, the federal government's going to change everything. No, the Supreme Court is the principal agent. And... No state can protect babies. When Roe is overturned, and that's the thing about this president, he's giving us good judges. Neil Gorsuch is just the ones you see. The judges he's nominating, the nominations he's appointing, they are not believers in a progressive ideology. They believe in self-evident truth. That's what our founders make our laws on. Self-evident truth, not not a truth that's unseen in the future somewhere you have to figure out. See, that's progressivism. It's a belief in a truth that you have to kind of guess at and figure out if you're really smart. If you go to, to an Ivy League college or go to Berkeley, you can learn how to figure out the progressive future and be one of us. But no, that isn't what our founders said. Our founders said, truth is self-evident. And the right to life is the first of the self-evident truth. You are you are a human being, and you're unique. Your creator made you unique. Government didn't create you. Government didn't give you rights. Our founder said, God gave you rights. The job of government is to protect those rights and ensure them. So we're getting good judges. That means Roe is going to be overturned. And my friends, that's why what happens now in California in every state it's important that we walk. I hope people do come to the walk. We'll be there in San Francisco this Saturday. But walking doesn't end abortion. You must be ready now to be a citizen and be involved as we should have all along. You're going to go back from that walk. You're going to go back to your town and your county. And you're going to do something that everybody does, hopefully. That's vote. That's what citizens do. This is an election year. It's not just for Congress or the president. A lot of times you're voting for a supervisor. You know that counties are funding Planned Parenthood in California? Your county, your city, your city council. How about school boards? We just mentioned earlier about releasing children from school time. Do you know that's the local school board that decides to do that? How many times have you voted, and you don't know anything about the people that you're voting for? Well, that's why National Right to Life and our state affiliates in California, it's the California Pro-Life Council, we want to equip you to be citizens. That's how we're going to end abortion. The overturn of Roe is not going to end abortion, particularly in California. So we do march. We do get involved. These are good things because we're saying there's something wrong. That's what a march and a demonstration does. But it doesn't end that wrong. We're invited to be participants in our culture and in our society as citizens. It's not that hard. It's a little extra work, but it's paying attention. 
So that's the excitement of this year and what what this royal anniversary is really about. It doesn't matter what the media says. Don't worry about the major media. They're, they're on another planet, and it, they're being revealed for who they are. Now it's our turn to be who we are and who we're meant to be, to be active and involved citizens, lovingly and caringly involved in society. And again, I want to emphasize what Brian is saying. Um, Pro-life people need to be willing to come out from the shadows, and not in a judgmental fashion. There are a lot of hurting people out there, 60 million children aborted since 1973, and the number is higher than that if you include the mothers and the fathers and the extended family of the secondary and tertiary victims of abortion. No, maybe they didn't lose their life to abortion, but something certainly within them died when they succumbed to surrendering a child's life. And so coming out from the shadows and providing a message of hope for those that are post-abortive and a message of viable alternatives for those that are considering abortion, critically important. Again, I'll underscore what Brian just mentioned, the 14th annual Walk for Life West Coast taking place in San Francisco, one of the biggest of its kind in the country taking place right here. Isn't that wonderful? It'll be this Saturday. And as we've discussed all week, you can get details on the web. Simply go to walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlifewc for West Coast, walkforlifewc.com. And our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, with that update on a couple of um, pro-life-related news stories across the country. All right, 5.30, and uh, tell you what we're going to do just before we go to uh, traffic here, Jarrell. We've got some goodies to give away. Is that right? This is something for all the people out there with two left feet. (laughs) I'm thinking, ideally, if you've got a wedding coming up here in the spring and you want to get ready to be able to uh, sweep your bride off of her feet on the dance floor, or maybe Dad wants to be able to uh, dance with his daughter... And you're just one of those folks like me that uh, can't get out of your own way and the excuse of tripping over your own shoelaces gets a little tired after all. Well, um, we've got something for you that you might enjoy. Our friends over at Mark Ballas Dance and Performing Arts Studio is providing gift certificates for private dance lessons so you can learn how to do the ballroom dance thing and uh, be able to uh, impress them all at the wedding. And uh, we're going to get... How many of these are we giving away? This I don't have a note here that says such. Just one? Can I override that? Yeah, I suppose I can. Huh? And then it's out on over the radio. I said, well, yeah, I heard it on the radio. <laughs> so let's give away two of these to callers number 11 and 12. Now, this is a private dance lesson, so you don't have to worry about being embarrassed. That would be ideal for me, because I would be. A $110 value, absolutely free. Maybe you give this as, a, if you don't use it yourself, can give this as a gift to somebody you know who's uh, got some nuptials coming up, or maybe there's going to be a, a wedding anniversary and uh, you want to make sure that uh, do a little ballroom dancing there. Uh, the happy couple uh, doesn't trip all over each other. Uh, this is the way to learn how to do it right. $110 value, and we're going to give away two of these to callers number 10 and 11. 
at triple eight three six seven five three two nine. That's eight 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 three six seven five three two nine. Triple eight F O R K F A X. Private dance lessons at the Mark Ballas Dance Studio in Pleasanton. Winners, callers number 11 and 12, 888 F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Charge. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's what you need to go into traffic, do you? All right. Sometimes it's that busy out there, you, you, you feel like you need that. All right. Let's get a look at what's going on. Help, Michael Bennett. Help. <laughs> He's got the latest. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Down through the years, if you've been a frequent listener to this program, you've heard me talk about Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who, in addition to being the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, was also very influential in training Planned Parenthood doctors on how to perform abortions once abortion became legal in America in 1973, and also admitted to being engaged in fast-tracking Racist, racist population control plans that were integral to Planned Parenthood under the leadership of its founder, Margaret Sanger. Well, today we take a look at the other side of Dr. Nathanson by someone who was an expert on not only Dr. Nathanson, but his coming to the reality of what life really is. Terry Bentley is the president and founder of the Hosea Initiative and also one of the keynote speakers at this coming Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco on Saturday. We'll tell you details about that in just a moment. Meanwhile, Terry, great to have you on the program. Uh, so great to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Nathanson, while well, he at the very forefront of the abortion movement in the 1970s was a purveyor of death, um, actually came full circle and, and came to a, a, a personal um, awakening, I guess I'll call it, uh, to understand mm-hmm. what the abortion agenda was really all about and eventually did a significant about face. Tell us a bit more for those that maybe are not familiar with his story. Yeah, I, I always think it's important for all listeners to know that uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, he was known as America's abortion king. He called himself the keeper of the abortion industry keys because to know his story uh, and to read his you know, well-kept minutes of the NARAL meetings back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, it tells the story. It tells the real story of how this team of atheists set out to deceive our entire country uh, about the reality of abortion. And they knew they were setting out to strip the unborn child of all rights and protections, uh, and they did it with an eight-point propaganda campaign. So what I like to say is, if, if he was if he was the keeper of the abortion industry keys, why not use those keys and let's unlock uh, this demonic stronghold that ha- that's really been holding our country captive for over 45 years? Um, so he he was the medical face of the abortion movement back in the late 60s, early 70s. And and this really, in terms of the role that he played and eventually going public 
with just mm-hmm. how organized this thing really was, really really flies in the face of the notion that has often been promoted by Planned Parenthood and ARAL um, at all, and that is that, well, we're just simply trying to protect a woman's right to choose, protect her constitutional rights, make sure that the ultimate decision regarding her body is in her hands and no one else's. I mean, a lot of it seems to be wrapped in flag-waving in the U.S. Constitution, things of this sort, but in reality the agenda that was here that was being promoted early on by Dr. Nathanson and others like him was far more evil, far more insidious than that, wasn't it? Well, well, it absolutely was, because it was all based on lies and deceptions. In fact, I'm pulling this from memory, so I hope I can can get this out right. Um, Dr. Nathanson, at the end of one of his books, he said, I believe the abortion ethic is fatally and forever flawed by the immorality of the means of its victory. A political victory achieved by such odious tactics is at best an unstable tyranny. And then he goes on to, he talks more, and then toward the end he says, I believe that an America which allows a junta of moral thugs, he was calling himself a moral thug, to foist an evil of incalculable dimensions upon this country. And if the country just allows it to, to flower, um, the, the country is going to end up with a millennium, millennium of shame. Um, so, it, it's, it's, I mean, he called himself a moral thug. So they used an eight-point propaganda campaign to deceive. I'm talking about deceive far and wide, not just the mothers and fathers, but the, their, their uh, propaganda campaign deceived the Supreme Court justices, judges across this country, legislators, the medical community, doctors, the media, as well as clergy. Is it so fair to say that this was, this was motivated by two factors? One, obviously, as it remains today, based on greed, and the other, fair to say, based largely upon racist ideology that was um, sort of inbred in the, in the mentality of the so-called science of eugenics? Oh, oh, uh, well, I don't think so much Dr. Nathanson. I would not have identified him. I will not identify him as a racist. He, he actually thought he was doing the right thing for women, and um, he, he really did. I mean, he, he knew they were killing babies, but, I mean, they, I, I guess when, you know, with that kind of an atheist mindset, and he was setting out to, they wanted victory, and it didn't matter how they got their victory. They just had to move it from point A to point B get abortion legalized, get it sort of normalized. And so it didn't matter how. Now, being, being the atheists that they all were, okay, lying, lying was okay. Because if you don't believe in God, I mean, at the end of the day, it's only God that gives us that direction that lying is wrong, right? So, so the, the, they came up with this plan to exploit American women, and to do so, they had to deceive. And they, I mean, they would use false statistics. You know, Nathanson said 60% of America wants abortion on demand, 60%. I asked him, where, so Dr. Nathanson, where did you get the 60% number? And he said, well, I really pulled it out of thin air. We just knew we had to be above 50%. The real percentage of people that, that wanted abortion on demand, it was not 60%. It was one half of 1%. Wow, that's uh, more than just a mild exaggeration to make one's point, isn't it? Well, yeah, and then, I mean, and those women who went to Washington, D.C., and then other other (laughs) cities across the country last Saturday, 
and they're they're screaming for their quote right, you know, to kill a child, and they they, they hold up signs of coat hanger abortions. You know, remember the coat hanger abortions. Well, here's here's the truth coming right from the doctor who marketed that lie. Um, he would say that that when when abortions, you know, being back then, of course, when it was illegal, he would say 5,000 to 10,000 women a year are dying of back alley, you know, coat hanger, you know, illegal abortion. And no, they weren't. That was a bald-faced lie. On the high side, it was maybe 200. And I've had other people tell me even 200 was too high, but Dr. Nathanson said maybe 200 to 250. Not 5,000 to 10,000 women dying. And if that was the case, we, we should have found a dead woman up and down every alley across America. But that was not the case. It was a bald-faced lie. So false statistics, false polling. And then he used the media. I mean, he used them. They were wet clay in his hands. He, because he was an OBGYN, and he had a job to do. He had to convince the American public by way of the media that um, abortion is a is a good thing, you know, to get this thing legalized, and that 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 the majority of people want it legalized, and women are dying all over the place, and so he he could tell the media anything, and they would believe it, uh, whether willingly or not. But I mean, they they believe what he said, and so they just kept pushing. The, and then of course they'd repeat the lies. So well, I think I just named four out of eight of the things that they did. So it's a uh, it, it's, it, I think the main thing is that they were all, uh, well, Dr. Nathanson was an atheist. He would not have described himself as a Marxist. I think it's really important to know that the founders of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, the two primary, well, two out of the three, the primary ones, Lawrence Slater and Betty Friedan, they were communists. Lawrence Slater worked for the first card-carrying communists in, the, uh, in, in Congress. So radical ideas were nothing new for this guy. I mean, he lived and breathed for revolution. Well, this is a revolution to, to morph America into a country which would allow the killing of 60 million babies. This is not a choice. This is murder. Yeah, and, That's of course, the, the irony is these. this was a this was a very well-crafted manipulation of everything from the media to the Supreme Court to Americans, and a lie that not everyone has bought into, but many people bought into for uh, 40-something years now. Slowly, though, this is being picked away at, more and more beginning to realize not just the, the, the falsity of many of the assertions behind the pro-abortion movement, but as we're learning today from Terry Bentley, um, some of the falsity that undergirded the very uh, foundations of the movement back in the 1960s and early 1970s. Terry Bentley, by the way, is going to be one of the keynote speakers at this Saturday's 14th annual Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco. That'll be meeting in the morning. That'll be at Civic Center Plaza. And then after um, gathering there, there'll be a march that will go from Civic Center Plaza down Market Street toward Justin Herman Plaza, where then there will be a, a rally and keynote speakers there. And, of course, there'll be booths and exchanging of lots of information. So uh, I hope you're making plans to be there. Come rain or come shine. That's this Saturday. Details available on the web at walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlife.com. 
WC, think of West Coast, WC.com. I'll mention, too, by the way, that uh, Terry is sort of the, the curator now of um, all of the uh, writings of Dr. Bernard Nathanson and, of course, is um, helping to spread word of his awakening and realization of what he was involved with. And, of course, uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson made an absolute about-face uh, later on in his life and then became a very, very strong vocal proponent for life. And um, she's written a book uh, detailing a lot about um, Nathanson and his work early on and his uh, coming to realize the value of life in a book called What If We've Been Wrong? You can get information on the web at Hosea for you. That's Hosea, the number for you.org. And uh, Terry, I hope we get a chance to get you back on the air here soon where we can uh, talk at length about uh, not just the book, but also your work. There is Terry Bentley, keynote speaker this coming Saturday's Walk for Life West Coast. Details on the web at walkforlifewc.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door. From that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, it'll come to me. It's a sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you won't get a little overwhelmed, though. Especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God. And yet, boy, how do you do it? And I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, are you good on the follow through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I, I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add him to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into him somewhere at the grocery store and they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet, is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says, absolutely, yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, when I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea. Thank you. Yeah, that um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term. And as and, and we talk about uh, lending the sense of, of organization, I, I know some people might shudder a little bit and think, oh, my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> i got to go buy a laptop so I have it handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I know that I need simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me, was just out of my own prayer life feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I, I said I was going to pray long term. 
And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way, and it started out, you know, note cards, three-by-five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that. <laughs> As you've approached this, you're, you're taking it very um, topical in a sense, and I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category. Mm-hmm. And then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So that it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day, big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart, when I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people were struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topics. And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month. Right. Right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise. Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because, you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the Scripture talks about going and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of Heavenly Father, I need, right. so-and-so needs, the other one needs, and it's, it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if, if, if Heaven had an email address, we would, we would do that and just say, you know, dear God, here's my list. Uh, get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests. Right. You're, you're, you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God. Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities. It can be very heavy, and I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers, and then praising God that he's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things, but remember, he's almighty, he's the comforter, he's our helper. 
There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me, and I and I think it's one, you know, a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually uh, do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs mm-hmm. and then forget about the times and they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion, in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where he's answered prayer. Absolutely. With with each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue? And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas. And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith. Right, and that is my hope through all of this. Uh, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just you know in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will it will expand our love for God and our love for our community, and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely. You know, every day. I, funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer Mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Um, as, As I told my nurse... Uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. Uh, you need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today. And I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, mm-hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which he is there with us, sometimes we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date, and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource, too. The book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.